should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening. Good evening. Oh, thousands of people here tonight. That's good. Welcome to today, almost tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place, as they say, where you're in the know. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and on Twitter and on our YouTube channel. But we'd rather that you come here, so if you're listening to this a week from now, you don't get to ask any questions if you're not here, but we hope that you'll come next time. I'm Joe Tuman, Professor of Political and Legal Communications at San Francisco State, and I'll be your moderator, moderator pardon me, for tonight's program. Um, our guest uh, today needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. He is an American diplomat, a politician, uh, a former United States Senator, Gary Hart. Uh, an attorney, a U.S. Senator from the state of Colorado, a two-time presidential candidate who had a very good chance of winning in 1988, the author of several books, I think, is it 15? 15 books you've written? Um, I wrote another one last night. Okay, 16. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. But tonight we'll be talking about the book he wrote just before last night, which is called The Republic of Conscience. Uh, this book, by the way, which I've read and I encourage you to read, is provocative. It's a meditation on the growing gap between the founding principles of the United States Constitution, written by our forefathers, uh, to protect against corruption, and the actual state of our current political landscape. The idea of a true republic has been threatened by narrow special interests, taking precedence over the Commonwealth and nowhere near the republic that America set out to be. Several times in the book, uh, Senator Hart makes note of the fact that if the Founding Fathers were alive today and walked into Congress and observed lobbyists at work, observed former congressional representatives or senators who gave up their seats and then took multi-million dollar a year positions representing the very industries they used to regulate, that their jaws would drop. If they observed the pernicious influence of money in campaigns, their jaws would drop. I think he's right on with this. 
Focusing on the years after World War II, Senator Hart tackles major American institutions, including the military, Central Intelligence Agency, Congress, and outlines how these establishments have led our country further away from its founding principles, and he suggests remedies for Americans who feel jaded, confused, and disappointed by our government. Gary is a graduate of Oklahoma's Bethany Nazarene College, both Yale Law School and Yale Divinity School. I guess he couldn't decide if he wanted to be a lawyer or a minister. And he also earned, because he didn't have enough degrees, his PhD from Oxford College. In 2014, President Obama named Senator Hart as the new United States Special Envoy for Northern Ireland. Please join me in welcoming our guest tonight, Senator Gary Hart. Professor, thank you very much. It has been my great honor over a number of years to uh, be the guest of the Commonwealth Club, one of the most distinguished forums in the United States. And I am uh, greatly um, excited to be back with you and appreciate your attendance here. I wanna thank George and Kara and all those involved with the club. Uh, for the invitation to join you and conduct a discussion. I have, um, as most people do, very fond memories of this city, and I will tell you an anecdote that occurred in connection with um, a presidential campaign I ran quite a long time ago. Um, at the end of the Democratic Convention in San Francisco, needless to say, I was, in case you missed it, I was not the party's nominee. And on the last day of the convention, indeed the day after the end of the convention, our campaign headquarters was the St. Francis. And we were heading out midday on Friday to have lunch with friends in Sausalito. And it was the last day after seven or eight months of Secret Service protection. So at 12.30, the Secret Service knocked on the door and led us down the hallway from the seventh floor corner suite to the side elevator on Post Street. And fortuitously, I hope I've got my history right here, we went out the side door, the Post Street door of the hotel, where I believe one of the Manson ladies tried to kill Gerald Ford. Is that right? I think so. Well, a, a, a small motorcade was there, and two or 300 people had formed up across Post Street to see who this might be, um, thinking it might be somebody a lot more important than I was. But we got about down to floor three and the Secret Service stopped the elevator and without a word took us back to the seventh floor, took us down the hallway, put us in our suite and stood double post outside our door. No explanation. I would say 15 or 20 minutes went by, knock on the door, we came out, walked back down the hallway, got on the elevator, went down outside the same door Crowd's still there, I waved, we got in the car and started for the Golden Gate Bridge. I am sitting, as we are instructed to do, I'm sitting behind the passenger in the back, passenger seat, escort, who 
and this is a man called Steve Ramsey, who was head of the Secret Service detail. And I was waiting for an explanation, and Steve didn't say anything. So we got about halfway to the bridge. I leaned forward, and I said, Steve, what was that about? He said, um, our site agents um, ran into a problem they didn't like. I, I hope I'm not giving away Secret Service secrets, but the Secret Service has what they call sight agents. They don't have things in their ears or magic wristwatches or anything like that. They are in street clothes and they walk through crowds and look for people that fit what they call the profile. Now we've had all kinds of profiling, but given the job of protecting presidents and presidential candidates, they have had their psychologist, psychiatrist describe what kind of person uh, tries to kill a president or a presidential candidate. I learned a lot about this, needless to say. So Steve said, um, our site agents were going through the crowd and they saw somebody that fit the profile and they took a chance and confronted him. Now the chance is if you, if you uh, approach someone as a law enforcement officer who hasn't done anything wrong, in theory at least, you could be liable to um, some sort of lawsuit. This was a young man with a kind of scraggly beard and unkempt hair, and he had a backpack, and uh, I don't know whether that was enough to qualify him for the profile or not. But they confronted him and said, Secret Service, we'd like to see your backpack, and he took off down Post Street. They chased him, threw him down on the ground, and found out he had a loaded 38 caliber pistol in the backpack. Off he went to the San Francisco Police Department headquarters with the Secret Service. So we drove another six or eight blocks. And I said, um, Steve, Steve said, we have, our guys are there. I said, Steve, do me a favor. Ask your guys to ask the kid. They were now calling him the kid. I think he was probably early to mid-20s. Ask the kid if he knows that I did not get the nomination. <laughs> so Ramsey mutters into the walkie-talkie thing, and we drove another couple of blocks. Ramsey goes like this. He turns back to me and he said, our guy asked him if he knew you didn't get the nomination. He said, he didn't. Um, he, he apparently hadn't read newspapers, watched TV, or anything else. It's um, closest I ever came to understanding insult being added to injury. <laughs> 25 or so years ago, I became a Republican. And for those of you, if there are any Democrats in the, in the audience, uh, please don't fall out of your chairs. This is a... Republican with a small R, and here's how it happened. I've read Thomas Jefferson off and on all my life and have spent a good deal of time as an amateur historian studying the early American, studying early American history. And Jefferson, 
as you know, uh, when the, when the much-feared factions began to form, which all the founders felt was a bad thing, but they formed anyway, if nothing else between Federalists and, Repub and large R Republicans, he called, he was asked what he was, and he said he was a Democratic Republican, small r. So I thought, all my life I've referred to myself as a Democrat, capital D and small d. And what's all this about Republicanism? We had learned something about it in the eighth grade civics class in the public schools of Ottawa, Kansas, where I grew up. But I had, whatever we learned there had gone right past me. So I started reading Jefferson and all the other founders. And I think those of you who studied early American history and the founding era know full well that in virtually all their correspondence and their speeches that the founders referred to the government they were creating as a republic. Now these were learned, by and large, learned men, as it turns out, who had, one way or the other, uh, studied the early political philosophers in both ancient Athens and Rome, and many of them could read those early writers of political philosophy from Plato onward in the original Greek or Latin. So these were serious people, and they were not using the language of the Republic by accident. Partly, it was the fear that Thomas, that John Adams and Hamilton and others had of the, of the very notion of democracy because they equated it with the French Revolution and mobs in the street. But it was even more positively what they really wanted to do, idealistically, was to model a government on the Athenian Republic and the early Roman Republic. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Hey. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do. 
especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. And again, those of you who studied history all the way through know that republics, after Rome became an empire, and for years thereafter, appeared and disappeared in places like Venice and the Swiss cantons. And then the ideal of the republic was resurrected in the early 16th century by Machiavelli and made its way into the thinking of this English and Scottish enlightenment, which really influenced our founders profoundly. They not only read ancient Greek and Latin, but they read the, the Republican thinkers of the 17th and 18th century in England, Scotland, and elsewhere. And they wanted to create that ideal republic. Now, they believed, as the ancient theorists of the republic believed, that republics throughout history, uh, two things. They had four things in common, and I'll tell you what those were. But they also had been small. And the, the theorists of the founding were stuck with the problem of how even with three million people along the eastern seaboard, you could have a republic modeled after the forums in Athens and Rome in the early days, where people literally got together and made decisions about the future of the republic. It's a little abstract, but they found the theories of Montesquieu, who, who contemplated that small republics could federalize themselves, could get together, and the founders latched onto that. Well, I won't go into all the kind of boring details about that, but they did, republics have always had four, four qualities, and the founder, our founders paid attention to these. The first was the notion of popular sovereignty. Years ago in this city, um, the Black Panthers got, got it right, power to the people. No kings, no oligarchs, the people held the sovereignty, held the power. And nothing in the Republic could happen without the approval of people like us. But if you have the power, you have, to, you have a duty to exercise it. What they called civic virtue, what today we would call citizen participation. A duty not just to vote, and carry out that loathsome practice that so many on talk radio hate, pay taxes, pay the cost of a civilized society, the way to think about it. So with popular sovereignty, sovereignty came civic duty, but there was a third component and it was a sense of the common wealth, the common good. Today, we would probably call that the national interest. But even as you know, some of our early states were called commonwealths. 
And what does that mean? Well, it's pretty, pretty obvious. There are things a society and a country hold in common that belong to all of us. Obviously, the environment, the air we breathe, the water we drink, but a lot of other things. In, in the West, particularly in my part of the West, the public lands, the public mineral and timber resources, the recreational facilities that have developed since the age of Teddy Roosevelt, here in this state as well. And that's part of the Commonwealth. We could go on and on, our defenses, um, our transportation systems, our waterways, uh, public transit systems, and, and so forth. Even though there's constantly a wave of privatization throughout our history, people today in my state now resurrecting the notion of privatizing the public lands, turning them over to the state to administer. Well, we all know what that means. They would be in corporate hands in a matter of days. These are legacies that we hold not only for ourselves, but for future generations. So a sense of the commonwealth. But there's a fourth quality, and that's what this book is about. It was resistance to corruption. Now, if we went outside this hall tonight, stopped 10 San Franciscans and said, what do you think corruption is? I can guarantee that nine out of the 10, if not all 10, would say bribery, money under the table. That's not what the founders meant. The founders meant by corruption, listen to this, putting special, narrow, or personal interests ahead of the common good. Putting special, narrow, or personal interests ahead of the common good. I want you to apply that standard from our founding to today's Washington and tell me by that standard that our government is not massively corrupt. One of the leading columnists in America a week ago on Morning Joe, Tom Friedman, was asked to describe what he thought was going on in Washington. He said it's legal bribery. Most of what's going on is not illegal. And therefore, people say, ho-hum. If you break the law, you get prosecuted, you go to jail. But they're not breaking the law. I'm going to give you some statistics to frame what has happened. Not just since our founding in the late 18th century, but in the 30 years since I left the United States Senate. In the 70s, there were fewer than 3% of members of Congress who ever became lobbyists. I served with great senators on both sides of the aisle. I could name the names. I don't think anyone here is as old as I am, but if you are, you would remember the names. Mike Mansfield and Stuart Symington and uh, Abe Ribicoff and Gaylord Nelson and, and then later Alan Cranston and others. Great senators. Great senators, not one of them became a lobbyist. Many of them did not even come back to the Senate to say hello to those of us who had served with them 
because they did not want it believed that they were asking favors from those still sitting in the Senate. Today, almost 50% of members of Congress become lobbyists. In 1973 or four, there were 162 registered lobbyists in Washington. Today, there are over 13,000. Over $4 billion a year are spent in the lobbying industry. That's bad enough. But then you've got, parallel with that in the last 25 to 30 years, an explosion in the costs of campaigns. And guess who raises an awful lot of the money for the candidates, both running for re-election, who are in office, and by the way, this is both parties. This isn't one party or the other. Or candidates who are challenging incumbents. An awful lot of it is raised by those very same lobbyists. And they don't just give 500 or 1,000. As you know, in national races and in Senate races, fundraisers are called bundlers, which means that if you bundle enough checks and it gets up in a national campaign to quarter of a million, half a million, or whatever, you're in the queue for a pretty good embassy. Well, that's been going on for a long time, and so you can't say, if that's the worst thing there is, we're okay. What is being bought is access. Access. Each of us, including elected officials and appointed officials, have the same number of hours in the day and need approximately the same amount of sleep, which means that we have a finite number of hours in office. And those hours, I can tell you, are divided up into 15 to 30 minute segments. I can absolutely guarantee you who gets moved onto the calendar for access to the center or house member or cabinet officer is someone who has raised a lot of money. Not always, but more probably than not. It is human nature. This is not just a, a, an aging patriot aggrieved here. I mentioned Tom Friedman two or three weeks ago. One of the leading business uh, magazines, they call themselves a newspaper, the British Economist, I'm sure many of you read, had a opinion section written by one of their anonymous uh, writers talking about corruption in Washington and how not only was it hurting American government, it was hurting corporate America. It was undermining not only people's confidence in their government, it was undermining their confidence in corporate America. Now that wasn't me, it wasn't a liberal, this was a conservative, pro-business, pro-capitalist magazine, widely read. So I guess in a way, I'm just, I'm entering what is a growing group of people. I just signed on to be on the board of um, Issue One, a new organization that is organizing across the country to try to, despite 
the Supreme Court decision, reform financing of campaigns to put a longer barrier than one or two years between the time an elected official can leave office and become a lobbyist, not just a year or two, five or 10 years, that would help a lot. And I think the thing that would make the most difference in limiting campaign financing goes back to the issue of the Commonwealth. Many of us assume on a casual basis that NBC, Fox News own the airwaves. They don't. They belong to us, part of the Commonwealth. The airwaves, we the people, popular sovereignty, license the right to broadcast on those airwaves, television and radio, to private entrepreneurs who make a great deal of money selling advertising. And by the way, despite editorials on air about the runaway campaign finances, 80 to 90 cents of every campaign dollar goes into their pockets. So a simple law that I think is the case in almost every democracy in the Western world that required the licensees of our airwaves to make a limited amount of time for free available to qualified candidates would do more to cut the cost of campaigning and undermine the connection between the lobbying industry and electing people to office than anything else I can think of. This book is not a reform book. I don't lay out an agenda. I try to describe both from the perspective of the late 18th century and also the perspective of a former public servant who's seen these changes in the last 25 or 30 years. Dramatic changes. And getting people to begin to think about this. I just saw a book written by a couple of political scientists called Running From Office about how young people and thoughtful people and intelligent people do not want to seek public office in America anymore. And they, they have all kinds of political science polling and data to support their argument. I can't tell you how far away that is from ask what you can do for your country, which got me and many of my generation including your governor, my law school classmate, Jerry Brown, into public service, not politics, public service 40 years ago, 40, 55 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I leave you with this thought. I hope the book, if you take the trouble to look at it, is sobering. I hope it does cause you to ask, what can we do about this? I hope you will ask candidates for national office, federal office, whether they will or will not take special interest money, political action committee money, and particularly the super PAC money. I, for one, will not vote for anybody that will not make that pledge. That's all I can do. We're gonna have to stop this somewhere. Otherwise, uh, we will turn over to our children something else than a republic. But 
I say at the end of this book, so it isn't meant to be depressing, that the reason I know I am an idealist is because I'm an American. Thank you all very much. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Um, it's now time for our audience question period, and we have a number of uh, questions. But just before we begin, let me remind our radio and internet audience, this is the Commonwealth Club of California, and we're talking with Gary Hart, former United States Senator and presidential candidate and author of a new book, Republic of Conscience. You can hear the Commonwealth Club programs on the radio and catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter and see program videos on our YouTube channel whenever you like. Um, Senator. I wanted to start, we have a number of questions for you here that, that run uh, a gamut of, of uh, or a range rather of issues, but I wanted to start uh, tonight with a question from me. Um, in the book, as you mentioned, uh, you scope out the beginning of the book, for those of you who have not read it yet, what are, I guess, from my perspective, four criteria for a republic. You mentioned them in your speech. One of them was resistance to corruption. 
Another was uh, a population that was uh, civic-oriented, uh, right? And, and you define what that was. Um, another was popular sovereignty, and I'm now forgetting what was the fourth sense one. The a sense of the commonwealth, I'm sorry. Um, many of these things, uh, from my perspective, reflect a culture that is oriented towards the community, about us and not about me, uh, I. The United States has been characterized for a long time, if you go back to de Tocqueville, who visited the United States in the 1800s. De Tocqueville wrote about us, a Frenchman, wrote about us in 1831. An American exists in and only of himself and for himself alone. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, he is close to them, but he does not see them. He touches them, but he does not feel them. Almost two centuries ago. Most people around the world look at us as a culture that is mostly about personal freedom, autonomy, um, I don't want to say selfishness, but oriented towards the individual. How can we change, this is a big question, how do we change back to the republic that you think our forefathers envisioned if we don't also address what is a cultural value in this country, which is I and not us? Well, <clears throat> I will not try to flatter you by saying it's a great question, but it is. <laughs> it's, in a way, the central question. Even back in the 70s and early 80s, I sensed growing unhappiness, first among my constituents in Colorado, but then as I began to travel the nation, giving speeches and listening to people, I sensed that this dissatisfaction was pretty widespread. And even then, that was about a third of what it is now, or even less. So over those 30 years or 40 years, this sense of dissatisfaction, of unhappiness, of frustration, focused more and more on politicians and on Washington. It's <laughs> it would be funny if it weren't so tragic the number of candidates, virtually all of them, who want to go to Congress and who run against Washington. There used to be a term limit provision, and a lot of people in my state, conservative people, signed up. And they said, I will only serve 12 years. I'm on the term limit. I'm not going to become part of the problem. <laughs> virtually to a person. When they got to the 12 year, end of the 12 years, they said, you know, I've been thinking about it. And um, <laughs> I think I'm needed here to, to, to stop all this stuff that's going on. Well, at what point, diversion here, uh, at what point do you stop being part of the solution and become part of the problem? Uh, no one's ever figured that out. What I'm getting to, Professor, is the sense that an awful lot of people have. And by the way, this, is, this, is a, this forum is a form of the Republic. It is a town hall meeting by concerned people. I don't assume you're here to listen to me. I'm, I think you're here to think about and be challenged to think about where this country is headed. I, I choose to believe that, and I've tried in my own humble way, 
through writing, <laughs> writing all these books, uh, to join in that conversation. So I think deep down, Americans care about the country. I think they certainly care about their children. I realized some years ago, there's one thing almost all of us have in common, and that's we all have children. And, and even the richest people in America have to, at, at one time or another, think, I'm leaving my kids hundreds of millions of dollars. We have gated, we have houses and gated communities on, in six areas of America and Europe. We have our own private bodyguards, our own Air Force, on and on and on. But what about the air they breathe and the water they drink? And they suddenly, you know, I think it probably happens closer to deathbed than other times. What kind of public legacy am I leaving? So the shorthand answer to your question is we all ought to go back to eighth grade civics. <laughs> and I don't mean just eighth graders, but we all ought to go back and think about what this country was supposed to be. The famous quotation may or may not have happened, may be apocryphal, out of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia comes Ben Franklin. And a citizen asked, because these were closed sessions, Mr. Franklin, what, what are you creating in there? He says, a republic if you can keep it. Meaning, you have the power, you have to exercise it. To exercise it, you have to participate, and that's more than just begrudgingly pay, paying taxes and voting. Now, you talk about people around the world. I've traveled the world, a lot more than 70 countries. Russia, more times than you can count been fortunate in that way. When I talk to people, and particularly young people, for more than five minutes, what I realize everywhere, two things. They, people everywhere envy our standard of living, and why not? Even though they know that 45 or 47 million Americans are in poverty, but they think most people in this country live like we do. What they really admire about this country is what we stand for. And what I argue in this book as a veteran of something called the Church Committee in 1975 and 76, that led to the abolishment of assassination of foreigners, now resurrected in the drone program in a democratic administration, is that people around the world know the gap between who we say we are and how we actually behave. And you can't fool them. You can't get away with that kind of hypocrisy. So when we erode, when we behave differently from what we claim to believe, we erode confidence in America. Okay. All right, very good answer, thank you. Um, I'm going to start with a couple of questions from the audience that are sort of, uh, I guess we'll put these in the realm of, of, of politics. And actually, well, this one, first one, I guess, is a direct question about the book. Um, one of our audience members wrote, it is not that the government is corrupt, it is the populace. 
and I guess he's challenging your assumption. He says, your assumption is that we have an aware and moral populace. What is your solution that brings education without corruption in line with the ideals of John Adams? I guess what he's asking is how, how would we educate people differently about Are corruption? People differently? Or uh, how, how would you educate people differently well, about corruption? Well, I mentioned everybody going back to eighth grade civics and learning the basics again. The basic principles, I, I cite an historian I think is the best early American historian, I'm sure many of you know him, if you don't you should, called Gordon Wood. He taught for 40 years at Brown University and he is one of the, probably the leading early American, the dean of early American historians in America. I, I'm proud to say he uh, made a very nice comment on the, on the back of the book. I quote him in, in a, a statement taken out of one of his books, I think, the uh, radicalism of the American Revolution or something. Brilliant, brilliant. He says, he quotes the, one of the, several of the founders to the effect that republics last if they, in a timely manner, renew their first principles. And that's what he was talking about, is find a way in meetings like this, in schools, in religious institutions, anywhere in, in what is usually called civil society, which includes all of those things. Find a way not only to let people air their grievances, but to discuss answers to the questions that you are already asking. How do we change this? And if you believe as I do in the genius fundamental genius of the American people, if, that, if those people, if we are not too turned off, we will find a way. The late Arthur Schlesinger, as you know, inherited from his father, also an historian, the cycles of American history theory. And he had it at about 30 or 40 years. We have had real corruption in the past, teapot dome, bribery, money under the table, stuff like that. And, and that happened during what Arthur called a period of consolidation. <laughs> um, but inevitably, corruptions seep, seeped in, and that led to a period of reform. And I think this country is poised, if people, if, if we can and we will defeat, change, overrule, Citizens United, and get past this ridiculous. I don't think there's a C student in any law school in America that believes that a legal fiction called a corporation has the same First Amendment rights of free speech as you and I do. It, it's how five Supreme Court justices could reach this conclusion. It's beyond me. I have one hope, to live long enough to see that ruling overturned. Then we're on our way. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Iran, nuclear Iran. Iran. We only have three minutes, so uh, quickly on that one. Go ahead. Just I'm for the treaty. Before it. All right. <laughs> Let me... Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll try to give a short answer to a complicated question. In rapid-fire order, it's a glass half full versus a glass that's empty. If this agreement is defeated by by Congress, two things are gonna happen. The sanctions will come off. We can try to keep them on unilaterally, but this isn't an agreement between the US and Iran, contrary to what a lot of American people think. It's an agreement between the United Nations Security Council and Iran. And the United Nations Security Council includes two close allies, 
plus Germany, by the way, uh, Britain and France, plus Russia and China. So if we back out now, they're going to take sanctions off for their countries, and we're left hanging out there to dry, and we have lost our moral authority on the issue. I am a veteran of arms control agreements between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s and beyond to a degree and participated in some of those negotiations. You don't negotiate with your friends. You don't negotiate arms control agreements with your friends. We don't have an arms, arms control agreement with Great Britain. You negotiate with your adversaries. And so to refuse to negotiate is to refuse diplomatically to try the only solution to solve a problem. And if all the, other, all the members of the other party are going to vote against it, if, if a handful of Democrats in the Senate particularly vote against this and, and don't vote to uphold the veto that's coming, shame on them. Thank you all very okay. much. All right. We have, uh, not done it. We have one more question. We have time for one more question. Keep, keep it running. Last question for you, if you would. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this. Um, without going into 1988, but just using that as a reference point, you mentioned in your presentation that it is increasingly less likely that young people will want to seek office. And a lot of people don't run uh, today because, as you indicated, raising money is a full-time job. Uh, it's very difficult. Uh, you can make more money doing something else, like becoming a lobbyist. And that was a joke. And uh, more importantly, because really since the 1980s, news media has been invasive in the privacy of people who seek office and people who are elected. In your book, you wrote, in that period of time, after that period of time, uh, I'm quoting from you, journalistic rewards were offered for disclosure by any means devised of the private lives of presidents and political figures with varying degrees of accuracy and verifiability. The duty of selecting leaders shifted from the people to the press. It's one thing for the people to know the emperor has no clothes. It's another for the media to peek in the windows of a private home to prove it. As someone who was affected by this yourself, with the benefit now of almost 30 years since that time, 28 years. Would you say that the media today, including social media, goes too far in the private lives of candidates and keeps good people out, the kinds of people you talked about who see public service as a noble calling, like JFK, keeps them out, and so we lose good quality people? Or do you think that candidates and electeds are fair game and their private lives, I and mean, it's something that they, they sacrifice when they run for office, and that's fair. What would you say? Well, um, a few weeks ago, I was um, speaking to an audience and uh, taking questions from the floor, and a man said, uh, ask a very specific question about events that occurred, controversial events almost 30 years ago, and how did and and uh, it was a it was a edged question, 
So I said, that's not what I'm here to talk about. And so we moved on. But I, then I came back and I said, well, if we're going to be personal with each other, let me be Dr. Phil for a moment. <laughs> I would say to you, if you are still obsessing about something that happened 30 years ago, you might want to think about getting some professional help. <laughs> okay. But, 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 but do you yeah, think I, it is too it's invasive It's a generic today? question. I yeah. understand. Yeah. Um, I would encourage, well, first of all, where I'm concerned, I would encourage you to read a book called All the Truth is Out by a journalist called Matt Bai, came out a couple of years ago, that laid a lot of press myths where I'm concerned to rest, hopefully forever, uh, the famous daring the press and all the rest of it. He just establishes that never happened. Um, I think the shorthand answer, without rambling on about all this, is a, a, a point was, even journalists say, that was a tipping point. And yeah. now everything is fair game. I, I guess you could argue, if you were arguing for Rupert Murdoch, that um, if you've got nothing to hide, why not? Uh, look in my windows, follow me around, all the rest of it. But there's a deeper problem there. First, well, first of all, it's common knowledge. We <laughs> had those rules applied earlier, we would not have had uh, President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, Kennedy. President Johnson, Johnson. Uh, the list goes on. So uh, you can either have, I suppose, perfect uh, people, blameless, flawless, which does kind of limit the field. <laughs> well, this is my point. A lot of good people who yes. are very capable will choose not to run because they feel that there should be a line. Well, I'm a walking poster whether I want to be or not. And over the years, I, can't, I couldn't even begin to count the number of people who stopped me in airports and on the street and said, no, I wanted to run for office, but after what happened to you, I wouldn't even think about it. So that, that's just what I run into. I, I remembered the time of Walter Cronkite, Huntley Brinkley, uh, Scotty Reston, great journalists. Uh, not, not very yeah. many left. Yeah. Thank you all very much. Okay. And I have, I have one of the best editors and publishers in America, David Rosenthal, at what is now the merged Penguin Random House. So two big publishing houses have merged. David runs it, and he published the book. I said, David, when he sent me the copy for the cover, I said, David, put my name in the size type of the title and put the title in the size type of my name. <laughs> we had this feud for six months, and I lost. So I apologize. I think you'll sell more books, though. Listen, our special thanks to Gary Hart, former United States senator and presidential candidate you should have been president, and author of Republic of Conscience. We also want to thank our audiences here and on radio and television and the internet. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. 